and good morning, everyone, or good evening, whatever the case may be. Welcome to another episode live of The Other Side of Midnight. You know, folks, there, there are people that write to me from time to time and say, wait a minute, Hoagland, you're not doing two shows in a weekend, or you skip three weekends, or, you know, stuff like that. You guys don't understand. I am broadcasting like Art used to do. I'm not quite sure why that's doing what it's doing, but we will kill that. Okay, some setting. It's Mercury Retrograde. Remember, folks, there is something actually real about all that. Um, anyway, uh, what was I saying? Um, like Art, I am broadcasting from the middle of a desert. The problem is this desert has a very unreliable power supply. A few months ago in the middle of the dead of winter for 24 no, I think it was more like 36 hours. We lost all electricity, heat, phones, lights, everything. Ever tried to stay warm in a house made of adobe as it cools down to ambient and the outside temperature is like 20 degrees? And the power company didn't give us any warning. They didn't say like, you know, well, in a day or so, we're going to have to turn the power off to do some certain maintenance or whatever. It just disappeared, and when you would call the power company, as long as I had power to the phones, I do have a landline. But, of course, everybody with cell phones quickly ran their batteries down, so they were using whatever landlines they had. And so the um, electricity, the battery of, of, of the bank of batteries at the local telephone you know, exchange, they ran down. So ultimately, it was dark, it was cold, it was lightless, heatless. No food, no coffee, no – I mean, living in a desert has extraordinary upsides, and sometimes it has extraordinary downsides. So for all our listeners all over the world who have 24-7 everything at your fingertips, a little bit of consideration for what it is to try to be doing this at the cutting edge from the land of enchantment would be appreciated. Now, there are some bright people that say, well, Hoagland, just get yourself a generator. Well, A, there's the financial stake of getting a generator, which is not trivial. Number two, there's gasoline. Number three, if the power goes out in the entire community, which it does with frequent irregularity, the local Wi-Fi is not working. So having your own system means nothing. Yes, you'll have light, you'll have heat, you'll have microwave, but you won't have any telecommunications. You won't have the Internet. You won't have cable. You won't have all those appurtenances because those rely on an infrastructure that's more than just a single dwelling. Be that as it may, we're on the air live tonight, and we've got an extraordinary show. I want to start out with something really amazing. If any of you guys are night owls, guys and gals, and you get up about uh, an hour before dawn, Look up on Google, wherever you are, what time dawn is, and plan to get up an hour, hour and a half before, and you look to the northeast where the sun is going to come up, you will see an extraordinary sight. The brightest comet in Earth's skies since Hale-Bopp in March of 1997, 22, 23 years ago, is now gracing our skies. It is called... NEOWISE, which is an acronym composed of two major NASA telescopes, which found this thing just a few weeks ago. Now, we've had a few close calls this spring. There was Comet Atlas and there was SWAN, and they both kind of fizzled out. Both had been projected based on light curves, how they brighten as they get close to the sun, to be rather spectacular. And they both just, poof. Movie dust, I think someone once called them. Anyway, they fizzled. Comet Neowise is not. In fact, at my last reading, which was to do with some news earlier today, it still seems to be brightening. Now, why is that interesting? Because a few days ago, it rounded the sun, what's called perihelion, give or take about 27 million miles away, which is well inside the orbit of Mercury. And it's now heading out. In the next few days, it's going to come closest by the end of the month to Earth at a little over 60 million miles away. But if you put all these curves together, the bottom line is this is a spectacular celestial apparition 
which for the next few days is going to be visible in the in the morning sky. And then about the middle of the month, around the 14th of July next week, it's going to swing around. So it's going to be visible geometrically in the evening skies after sunset. And it will get higher and higher and higher against a dark sky. So about 80 or 90 minutes after sunset in the northwest, because it's mirror image when it flips around the sun, you'll be able to see it. And apparently it's got this extraordinary tail, which is getting bigger every night. They estimate that the nucleus, the solid lump of whatever this thing is made of, which is releasing the hydrogen and the oxygen and the water vapor and the carbon monoxide and carbon dioxide and cyanogen and other cometary materials. It is making this thing glow brilliantly in the um, uh, distant rays of the sun, which is still, I think, around 30, 35 million miles uh, away, which in the solar system is nothing. And so this thing is being heated. It's releasing all kinds of gases. It's producing a spectacular celestial show. And don't watch it on SLU. Don't watch it on the Internet. Don't watch it on television. Go outside with your naked Mark I eyeballs and look at this thing. It's an extraordinary sight. It will, it will raise all kinds of questions and implications and far-reaching, shall we say, metaphysical musings. Because it's the third time that's the charm. Now, as you know, I kind of spend my professional life asking questions that a lot of people don't. And I've been asking myself for the last several weeks, how come we've had three strikes now? to get a really brilliant comet in the skies at the same time that planet Earth is going through the most extraordinary modern history that one could conceive. Another once-in-a-hundred-year pandemic to which 180, 190-some nations have responded with extraordinary alacrity and with extraordinary synchronization, which doesn't happen every day. Then we've got uh, racial foment all over the world, particularly in the United States. Because of the COVID pandemic and the forced uh, lockdowns, which is actually not a technically accurate term, but an awful lot of people have been working from home or not showing up to work or not able to work. And so there are now literally tens of millions of people in the U.S. alone out of work, out of a job. And we're told by some of the prognosticators that about 40 to 50% of those jobs are not going to return. So we're suffering an economic crisis, the worst since the Great Depression. We have a global pandemic killing people at a ferocious rate. Half a million have now died globally. There are tens of millions who are infected. The, the, the numbers of people who are infected is going from seniors who are finally being protected down to 30s and 20s. I mean, it's it's... That's a whole show in and of itself, which we are planning because we have made what I think is an extraordinary singular discovery about COVID-19. And as I said uh, last week and a couple of weeks ago, the reason we're not doing anything about it yet is we are checking, 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 checking. I think I found something so stunning, so extraordinary, so out of the box but so checkable that before we go into prime time, I want to make sure that we have crossed our T's, dotted our I's, and not made some really, really dumb, stupid mistake in the analysis which says we've found something extraordinary. Now, what I don't know yet is whether it's unique to COVID-19 or it can be more generalized to other epidemics and pandemics and that's part of what we're checking i'm also looking to find the right doctor to bring on the show to have this conversation in terms of a potential panel discussion so since this horrible situation is going to be with us for some time and is likely only to get more severe depending upon how people are responding um, the show will not lose timeliness, 
But when we do it, I want to do it right. I'm a stickler for data. I'm a stickler for documentation. And what we have found is so extraordinary that I'm almost creeping into Sagan's territory, uh, for which I disagreed vigorously decades ago. But this really does require some extraordinary evidence to document what I think we have found. More on that much later. If you go to the other side of midnight.com, that's our URL for the show. If on any device you can get there, the other side of midnight.com, click on tonight's show, which is for Saturday, July 11th, 2020. It's the show about black superheroes. I kind of thought it was appropriate that we do something uh, on this subject because as, as Arlen said in the words that I cribbed mightily from, for the uh, promos for Facebook and uh, blog talk, um, we have not seen this kind of social uh, foment and turbulence and extraordinary implications for what is to come since the 1960s. And it was in the 1960s that the idea of black superheroes was literally born from the fevered creative brain of one Jack Kirby. Now, why is Kirby interesting? Well, Kirby's interesting to me because many years ago, a friend of mine gave me a birthday present wrapped in a beautiful little, you know, uh, package, and it came with a display case. I mean, how many presents do you get at, uh, on your birthday that come with a display case? So I opened up the package and the display case, and there in my hands was a 1958 comic book penned and illustrated by one Jack Kirby. And the subject, the face on Mars. And, of course, I've had lots of discussions with our uh, kind of resident comic book expert and uh, major movie mogul, uh, Chris Knowles, um, about the extraordinary, quote, coincidence that Jack Kirby would somehow intuit or understand or reach across time and space and limb out an extraordinary story in this comic book, which in fact turns out to parallel to an astonishing degree the reality of Sidonia and the face on Mars that I've spent, you know, decades now researching ever since it was discovered in 1976. How did Kirby know not only that an effigy like this would be on Mars in 58? But how could he have known the story that goes with it? Unless, well, I'm not going to speculate. I'm going to talk with Arlen in a few minutes about this. Let me get back to the comet. Shakespeare, if you go to the second item in Radio with Pictures, right under the story about how you can see the comet in the night sky for this month and probably well into August, and it will be amazing. So again, don't Google don't go to the web. Don't go to television. Go outside before dawn or after sunset in the next few days and look at it yourself. You will kick yourself if you don't do that at least once because a comet this brilliant. Well, Shakespeare said it. When beggars die, there are no comets seen. The heavens themselves blaze forth the death of princes. You know, I can't help wondering given how much death on earth there is tonight, how many people have died from this disease, how many people have needlessly died from this disease. If at some metaphysical level, this comet, Neowise, think of it, that acronym itself chosen <clears throat> from the NASA telescopes, which have seen this thing up close in orbit. Think of the interaction of this apparition and the idea that millions of ordinary heroes, princes in their, or princesses in their own right, are being venerated and acknowledged by a celestial apparition which comes once in maybe a generation. Given the fact that we're undergoing this extraordinary racial 
foment right now, undone missions, unaccomplished completions from 30, 40, 50 years ago. I thought item number three was very interesting because if you click on that item, there's a picture there of a white guy and a black guy and they're shaking hands. Now that in and of itself is not very extraordinary. Problem is the white guy is a cop. The black guy has been literally hounded by cops for all kinds of absurd, stupid things like being pulled over for a traffic fine as he's literally pulling out of his own driveway. You know, the idea of systemic racism abounding in small police departments all over the country, some 18,000 potential harbingers of this kind of archaic retro racism still well among us. Well, the guy on the left, the white guy, the cop, was trapped the other day in a burning cruiser. And his partner in another car stopped. They had an accident. The, the, the first cop had some kind of a traffic accident, and the car was catching on fire. The burning fuel literally racing toward the passenger and driver's compartment. And his partner in the follow-on cruiser could not get the door open. The cop was going to die a horrible death by fire. And suddenly... The guy in that picture on the right, the black guy, the black guy who had been hounded by cops his entire life, raced in, somehow ripped off the door of the cruiser and saved the cop's life. And that picture shows two grateful men, human beings, color notwithstanding, acknowledging that there is a bond much bigger than race that unites us all. Finally, item number four. We're in the midst of a pandemic. Every major media source, every authoritarian medical expert, every major institution from the CDC to the WHO itself are all talking about the fact that there is no vaccine and it's uncertain if there will be because these kinds of uh, coronaviruses mutate so rapidly that by the time you get a vaccine that works, the virus has changed and it won't work against the new mutation. Well, there is something else called a plasma shot, which could be given prophylactically to millions of people with literally a shot in the arm. Hypodermic, you can see the picture there. What it's composed of is the antibodies from the blood, from the blood plasma of those who have had COVID-19 and who have survived. The way we resist disease is we get the disease, and if it doesn't kill us, in that old Nietzsche quote, it makes us stronger. We develop antibodies, and those can be collected. And so if just a few hundred patients who survived COVID-19 were to donate plasma, literally Thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, and ultimately millions could be essentially given a shot that would give them temporary immunity for a few months, maybe six months, something like that. And the death toll that has been ravaging nursing homes and prisons and other places where people are unavoidably locked up with no hope of social distancing, those deaths could be prevented. This is a story which is so bizarre because in the face of proven science, in the face of something which is pretty trivial economically and in terms of manpower, both the feds and the corporations who make vaccines, who make medicines, who make prophylactic treatments, neither party, neither group seems to be interested against all kinds of expert urging, really urgent urging to take this step. Neither the federal government nor the vaccine or drug manufacturers appear to be interested in the slightest in development of a temporary fix which could save the life of countless numbers of people at the end of that long chain from those who get the disease, those who are most affected, and those, unfortunately, 
who will die. And that mystery, compounding with all the other mysteries that have been going on around this COVID-19, that mystery, again, we will address with some substance and some research when we finally do the next major COVID-19 show, which we are building toward. One of the potential side effects of this discovery is that there may be certain times when even people without any protection at all are less susceptible for catching this disease. And I know that may sound a bit mysterious, but uh, I'm, I'm deliberately not talking details tonight for a reason, because I don't have time or room to document what could be, again, an extraordinary discovery about this pandemic. Which brings us to tonight's subject. I really wanted to do this because, because as part of our work, looking at extraterrestrial civilizations and the idea that Jack Kirby, who came up with the idea in the 1960s, I'm sorry, 50s, I guess, of the first black superheroes, the fact that these two streams could cross. Well, let me kind of read what I wrote, you know, cribbing uh, mercilessly and shamelessly from Arlen. The Silver Age of Comics, circa 1956 to 1970, not only birthed a new generation of superheroes, but for the first time in comic book publication, black superheroes. The decade of the 1960s was one of the most turbulent in America and the world history, sparking revolutions of all kinds in political, socioeconomic, cultural, and artistic spheres. In the field of comic books, industry giant DC Comics rebooted its old superheroes from the 1940s, the so-called golden age, into newer, sleeker, streamlined versions while confronting its first serious competition in an upstart company called Marvel. The legendary white artist storyteller behind the newfound success of Marvel, Jack Kirby, suddenly decided to create the first black superhero, the Black Panther, six months before the infamous Black Panther political party was formed in 1966. Even more provocative, Kirby's Panther was not an African-American, but a royal African prince of Kirby's fictional ancient African kingdom of Wakanda. As current history is now attempting to complete the unfinished social transformations of the 1960s, was Kirby's extraordinary vision, which, remember, predicted the existence of the face on Mars in 1958, providing us a hint of a long-lost, simultaneous, black for civilization here on Earth? Join us.
Arlen Schumer is an award-winning comic book style illustrator of the advertising and editorial markets and a member of the Society of Illustrators and the author-designer of coffee table art, including Visions from the Twilight Zone and the Silver Age of Comic Book Art, which won the Independent Book Publishers Award for Best Popular Culture Book and a recognized expert in American popular culture, especially the legendary television series, The Twilight Zone, and the music of Bruce Springsteen, presenting his visual lectures on these and other subjects at universities and cultural institutions across the country and around the world. Arlen said, when my father died when I was four months old, and my mom raised my elder by 18 months brother and me herself, I grew up in Fairlawn, New Jersey, a great place in the early mid-60s with equal parts bucolic American suburbs and small-town Rockwellian pop culture ambiance. I think I ended up finding my surrogate father figures in the pop culture I was surrounded with. I now live in Westport, Connecticut. I've been working as an illustrator, graphic designer, writer, and lecturer since I graduated from Rhode Island School of Design, majoring in graphic design in 1980. Would everyone please welcome back to the other side of midnight, Arlen Schumer. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Richard. It's great to be here. Well, I'm giving you a mandate tonight. Put Uh-oh. into context what happened in the 1960s, the vision of black superheroes, which in a racist society, which the Americas were in the 1950s and 60s, was something of an extraordinary leap, both commercially and, and, and culturally, put that into context with what's happening now. Because my take is that we're closing the loop on an extraordinary era of history where what was begun a half century ago is now in the process, perhaps, finally, of completion. And Jack Kirby began, in part, that process. Absolutely. And it all starts with Jack Kirby. Real name, of course, Yaakov Kurtzberg. Like a lot of American Jews from his generation, they changed their names to fit in better with Gentile society. But it was definitely his Jewish background, his humanist, liberal, um, um, you know, background from you know, his kind of like Old Testament prophet because Kirby was a visionary. And, you know, he co-created Captain America. Him with his partner, Joe Simon, real name Jaime Simon, changed his first name. But they were two American Jews in the beginning of the comic book industry in 1941, nine months before America enters the war, creating a superhero named Captain America to try to enlighten the American public to what was happening. Because, you know, we were isolationists. It was considered Europe's war. And America was certainly not going to fight a war to save the Jews. But they were two American Jews that said, what can we do? So they created Captain America. And he was an overnight success. You know, there's that scene in the first movie that they made where he's stumping for war bonds. Well, that was based on the truth. I'll tell you what, hold it there. We're at the bottom of the hour. My guest this morning is Arlen Schumer. We're talking black superheroes. The concept in the 50s and 60s was, I mean, it was amazing. And tonight we're going to dip in and out of the um, musical score, the rather remarkable musical score to Black Panther. And we'll throw in a few other superhero themes and titles along the way as well. And you might want to guess which ones we're playing. You could send us an email. I don't have a prize, but I'd like to know that somebody out there is kind of monitoring what's going on. So let's see how good you are at superheroes and the movies. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Thank you. 
Side of the news can be heard here on this network, on this channel, on this website, on this URL, every Friday evening, two hours, 7 to 9 p.m. Pacific time. I warn you, you'll miss it at your own peril. Side of Midnight. We're doing Black Superheroes. But in honor of Jack Kirby, we had to play Alan Silvestri's immortal theme, and I do not use that word lightly, to Captain America. It captures an era. Arlen, we are back. We are back. Hey. You know, how did we move? And I'm going to leap around tonight, so let me let me kind of ask you this question. Then we'll go back to chronologically how, how Kirby invented a black superhero. How did we get to where the main cultural motif of the 21st century, these huge, whole, mega, super movies, both in terms of money and audiences and production and talent and computer graphics and the incredible complexity like like you know like 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 a mini war yeah. how did we get to where the main cultural idiom of americana which was the movies became centered on comic book superheroes richard when i was like 10 years old 
my older brother and I, he was a year and a half older, and all of our comic book buddies, whatever few there were that read comics, because it was still a kind of loner thing. And we only knew of each other through the letters columns we would write in the 1960s to DC and Marvel Comics. But we knew back then that if Hollywood took superheroes seriously and didn't just treat them campily like they did to Batman, which, by the way, we hated. And, I mean, to this day, I have what I call a love-hate relationship with that show, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> but the point is, is did we, you sit, hang on, hang on. Did you, right. did you sit like I did every week, praying, hoping, bended knee, et cetera, to whatever gods of television there were, that they'd finally do a serious Batman show at least once, and it all wasn't super camp with Biff and Pow and all that super on the screen. I mean, the Batman-Robin thing was such a disappointment to me as a kid, and I guess it was to you. But but here's the thing. I think we're in the minority, Richard, because the majority of you know fans of our age range that were there when Batman debuted in 1966, and those of us who were fans of the Batman comics before the TV show, and especially the ones drawn by the great Carmine Infantino, DC Comics' greatest artist, kind of their equivalent to Marvel's Jack Kirby, but in the sense of... You know, that version of Batman that only lasted for two years before the TV show was not what we got on television. We were expecting Sean Connery, James Bond. We were expecting, you know, those Connery Bond movies that, you know, there might be those famous comedic quips, you know, of Connery's. But those were serious spy movies. I mean, From Rush With Love was practically a Hitchcock film. You know, I and always wondered. Remember, Thunderball, the fourth Bond film, premiered in December of 65, a month before the TV show. We were fans of the Connery Bond. My first cinematic image as a kid is my mother, may she rest in peace, took my brother and I to see Dr. No in the summer of 63 at a drive-in movie theater in Paramus, New Jersey. That, of course, is not even there anymore, hmm. but the shopping malls still are. But the point is, is that's my first cinematic image. And we loved the Connery Bond. And, you know, we expected Batman was going to be like that. So imagine our shock. I was there on the night of January 12, 1966. My brother and I on our knees in front of the black and white Zenith television, 19-inch, <laughs> like an altar. Because the buildup of the – I can only describe it to a young generation listening. Imagine, like, the first three Star Wars by George Lucas – like rolled into one in terms of the intensity of the promotion. Because you got to remember, all we knew was the George Reeves Superman in terms of a superhero on television. Which you know, was which, dealing and, and point, with a superhero seriously. Right. I was born in 58, so I grew up with the Reeves show on reruns. But as a kid, I was a fan of the Superman comics drawn by the great baby boomer Superman artist Kurt Swan, my first favorite artist. Before we even knew his name was Kurt Swan because DC didn't publish the credits. But the point is, is even as a kid, I had the critical discernment. I looked at George Reeves and the slick back hair. I'm like, where's the spit curl? He didn't look like the Kurt Swan Superman. So I wasn't entirely happy with even the George Reeves Superman. But the idea that Batman was going to be on television, I mean, Batman was my favorite DC Comics character. I learned how to read from comics before I even learned how to read in school, like a, like a whole generation. But but we expected Batman to be like the Connery Bond. And the only way, Richard, I can give you the equivalent in Bond terms, you know, Casino Royale was first made as a movie in 1967 in the wake of the Batman TV show's campiness. And they treated it campily like a farce. You know, 12 different actors played James Bond, including Woody Allen. Mm. Now, there were five Connery Bond movies before that Casino Royale. And there were the legions of fans of the Ian Fleming books that have been out since 1951 or 52. The point I'm trying to make in terms of the analogy is, imagine if Bond fans of the Ian Fleming books had gotten Casino Royale in 1962 instead of Dr. No. Imagine if that was the first cinematic interpretation of Bond. 
those Bond fans would have stormed Pinewood Studios like, you know, the recent <laughs> riots. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, of course, of course. Okay. Do, do you know – Did you, you fans, that's what we got. We got the Casino Royale farce version yeah. of Batman because five minutes into it, Richard, the first episode, again, my brother and I on our knees like an altar, <laughs> and they're climbing up – Batman and Robin are climbing up the wall and the famous, you know, the way they shot it with – you know, them with the rope, right, climbing. Yep, and they yep. Get, and they get to the sixth floor where they want to break in the window to catch the Riddler. And the window has metal bars. So Batman takes out his bat laser torch from his utility belt. And, by the way, everything's fine up to this point. And, you know, laser torches the bars off. And Robin takes them and is about to drop them to the ground six floors below. Rob, Batman stops him and says in that Adam West, you know, irony voice. Hmm. Uh, hold on, Robin. You might injure innocent civilians below. So he takes out, again, from his utility belt, a bat suction cup with a hook <laughs> on the end, sticks it to the brick wall, takes the bars, and hangs them on the hook. My brother and I turn to each other in profiles, look at each other on cue, and both say out loud at the same time, they're making fun of Batman. Mm. Now, we didn't know what the word camp was. You know, that was from Susan Sontag's 1964 essay, Notes on Camp in the National Review, you know, I found out years later. But you know what I mean? But we knew instinctively five minutes into the first episode that they were making fun of Batman. Can you imagine Connery's Bond in 1965 going into a discotheque and doing the Bond Tusi? And yet that's what Batman does in the very first episode. And yet there's a whole generation of fans, Richard, that grew up with that show as their first exposure to Batman. And they think it's okay for superheroes to be. So this gets back to your original question. When I was 10 years old, we knew if Hollywood didn't take that approach, if they took superhero seriously, because there were so many great comic book stories by the likes of Jack Kirby, and Neil Adams and all the people that are in my book, The Silver Age of Comprecar. But, you know, we knew that. Well, it only took about 40 years before, in a sense, the old guard in Hollywood had to kind of, you know, metaphorically die off. Because the new generation that's greenlighting all these things is my generation and younger, where we didn't grow up with the contempt that comic book stories were trash. And that's extended to graphic novels being appreciated as literature. You know, in Europe, they always treated comics as literature. They always had beautiful bookstores and hardcovers. You know, typical Europe appreciated American art form like jazz, you know, before we did our own indigenous art form. But we're catching up. So you're saying it's the studios, you know, the old Planck, uh, you know, the Planck's constant, the physicist who said the only way a new idea ever really, you know, takes root in physics is when they, all the old guys die. You're yeah. saying that the studios, the old guys had to die, but I'm, I don't, Metaphor, I don't, I don't think I agree. I think the audience itself has been what's made this extraordinary success. Well, because the audience was me and the 10 year olds. In other words, there was a legion of us that are now our age that never had contempt for superheroes or comics. I mean, there are scientists, there are uh, policemen, army people that have become those professions because of the superheroes that they read. If I, you know, if, I if, if, if we if, never had that contempt, my point is yes, I'm only describing one part of what had to happen. But my point is yes, obviously, the audience that came of age with comics the last, I'll say, 60 years. Because I go back to the Silver Age when comics came to maturity in the 60s, along with rock and roll and other art forms. The 60s was the explosion of creativity that were still living the, the reverberations and echoes and ripples of, mm -hmm. like every other thing inside, which brings us full circle to the racial thing with what made you know Jack Kirby, who co-created Captain America, and then in the early 60s, when Kennedy dies, he's at Marvel Comics bringing back superheroes. And he brings back Captain America. 
as a proxy replacement for Kennedy. Because when Kennedy was shot, Kirby, like so many other Americans, was brokenhearted, shattered, and he thought, we need, we need Captain America. So in the spring of 64, he brings back Captain America. And then what happens in 64? The civil rights uh, movement is shocked by the murder in Mississippi. Well, you, uh, you, the had, the, you had the whole uh, you know, um, uh, martyr complex. When John Kennedy was murdered in the fall of 63, Lyndon Johnson knew that if he took up the, 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 the cause and ran through the Civil Rights Act, he would get overwhelming support from both the left and the right because of his persona and because of Kennedy's mystique. And it worked. Okay, but that's not what I'm talking about. Well, you're talking about what happened. I'm talking about what I think inspired Kirby to create Captain America. I was building to that. But it was was against that backdrop. Political consciousness. Yeah, what I'm saying is against that backdrop. In other words, do, do pioneers really pioneer or do they follow a social meme when it's kind of time for the meme to take hold? Uh, it's like a yin-yang. They happen simultaneously. Artists reflect what's happening in society, whether it's conscious, subconscious, unconscious, and whether they can even articulate it or not. You know, artists are human beings, but our, you know, uh, sensitivity receptors are out there, whereas lay people, they're mostly suppressed. That's what separates artists and creative types from, in a sense, lay people. And therefore, we are receptive to the ideas and the attitudes and the feelings and the political events and everything that's happening in society. And whether you're a commercial artist, whether you're a fine artist, whether you're a writer, doesn't matter. And like I said, you don't even realize sometimes, but you can't help but reflect your times. And like I said, some artists do it better than others. Some artists... And the ones we remember and talk about are the ones that succeed because they've tapped in to that universal consciousness that's, in a sense, happening whether we like it or not. Hmm. And what I was trying to say when I was relating the, the Mississippi murders is that two of those three were Jews. And I think Kirby's Jewish consciousness was affected by that. And then you get the 1965 Watts riots and Kirby makes a statement in an interview years later when he recalled that time. You got to remember, Kirby was the most popular Marvel Comics artist. His titles, Fantastic Four, Thor, Captain America. He was, his whole style is what the Marvel Universe is. Stan Lee was the editor and he dialogued and wrote the captions to basically Serling's stories. That was the Marvel method. So at the peak of his success, when Marvel I think you mean Kirby's stories, right? Yeah. At the peak of their initial success, by 1965, they start to get covered by national media, the New York Herald Tribune, Esquire magazine in 1966. Right around that time, Kirby makes a statement. He says, I came up with the Black Panther because I suddenly discovered that I had a lot of black readers And here I am, a leading cartoonist, and I wasn't doing a black man. And that's what he recalled. Hmm. So since there's not a lot of uh, written records or anything, we we as historians have to just piece together what I call the forensic comic book evidence in order to try to figure out how it happened. And we are blessed that what survives circa 1965, that's why I mentioned the Watts riots, because, you know, Sir, um, um, Kirby read, you know, the, the papers. He read National Geographic. Uh, you know, he was up on reading science fiction. That gets to the face on Mars thing. I mean, that comes right out of all the science fiction pulp novels that, that Kirby read. He was an autodidact. So wait, 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 wait. You don't yeah. – you, you, how do you explain him predicting not only this extraordinary architecture on Mars – but the whole backstory that we're, we've been figuring out in that comic, the storyline is pretty much what we 
Okay. Think, think happened. How did he do that? Okay. So, you know, I think I saw an episode of Ancient Aliens a couple months ago that uh, talked about how haven't the great geniuses of the world like Einstein and down through history, haven't they all sort of tapped into this cosmic consciousness that they've all admitted to in, in interviews and in written things they've left behind? They all talk about how they tapped into, Einstein called it thought problems. He, he said he would give himself thought problems. And I believe the geniuses of the world, the Michelangelos, the Picassos, the Kirbys, or the Einsteins and all the other geniuses in every, in every genre and medium, they do tap into this. It gets back to that creativity thing I was talking about, that, that, that universal consciousness, whatever you want to call it. And that's why they're able to do things like what you're describing Kirby did with the face on Mars story. Mm. How's that for an answer? Richard? Well, it's one possibility. I have, I have two Thank others. You. Thank I, you. I, At least the possibility. Well, remember, scientists like to weigh possibilities. Listen, you asked me the question. I'm saying, how's that for an answer? Let me, well, it, 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 it's, it's an answer. I'm not sure it's the right Thanks. answer. And I love finding the right answer. Let me give you two other possibilities. Who is to say what is the right answer? Well, let's have this conversation and see where it leads. Ah, yes. Do you believe in reincarnation? Whoa, that's a big one. Out of left field. Not really. It's a, um, you know, it's reincarnation. Yeah, do you? Well, you know, I feel like I'm on the witness stand and you're asking me in <laughs> Perry Mason, uh, would any protest that this is a, a leading question or something? You've got to give me the context of your question before I give you an answer to what I believe. Okay, okay, is, okay, okay. You know, you just threw me a, a loaded dice or whatever the metaphor is, Richard. Okay. Don't not mean, exactly. Don't, I, I talk about a non sequitur from what we were just talking not, about. Not, not at all, as I'm going to show you in the next 30 seconds. No. If we come back again and again and again, remember that famous Johnny Cash song that, that uh, Art Bell used to play? You no. know. What? Well, it was about reincarnation. It was a really great I song. Don't know. What? What is it? I, I should probably find it, you know, for one of the breaks tonight. Anyway, <clears throat> if we, if, if this is not our only shot, if we come back again and again and again, is it not conceivable that Jack Kirby lived on Mars in some distant era and some fragments, some memories, some trans consciousness leakage of that information? came to him because in this model we don't just randomly reappear we have missions in this model jack kirby's mission was to come back and talk about super solar system civilizations and extraordinary technologies and beings and powers and transcendent capabilities for quote ordinary people to give them the courage and the meaning to perform in their individual lives like the superheroes they were reading about. And in that model, is it possible that he actually was reaching into his own distant past to both replicate the reality of what's on Mars, an ancient civilization that died a horrible death and left extraordinary monuments and the same with Wakanda, the nation state, the kingdom who his black, you know, superhero prince emerges from, which I is, was gonna get to that. which yeah. is a pinnacle of high technology on a planet, planet earth simultaneous with a co-equal civilization on Mars, except one was black. And one was white. Okay, you want my answer? Of course. I'm going to answer by quoting scripture. And I don't mean the Bible. I mean Kirby's own scripture. In my book, The Silver Age of Comic Art, I take quotes from the artists themselves and put it inside their actual art. I take out the word balloons and put 
the artist talking about the art. So in my Jack Kirby chapter, I've got a double page spread of one of his famous Kirby pieces of technology, Kirby tech, as we affectionately call it. These machines that look like they can't possibly exist. They bend like Mobius strips, but they're metallic. And someday somebody will make a movie that actually looks like Kirby's artwork. But mm. inside that double page spread, I quote Kirby's own words. And as you were asking me this question, and as you were talking, Richard, I thought this is the best way to answer you in Kirby's own words. I used to read the first science fiction books and I began to learn about the universe myself and take it seriously. I know the names of the stars. I know how near or far the heavenly bodies are from our own planet. I know our own place in the universe. I can feel the vastness of it inside myself. As the rap artist would say, mic drop. Hmm. So he was voting with his words for a connection, a connectivity that transcended his physical reality on this little speck of dust called planet Earth. Which I think all geniuses... And, you know, the word genius has been cheapened over the, I would say, recent decades. I try to use genius sparingly, like only when you're talking about Einstein-level talent. And I think in our pop culture, media, you know, Instagram, texting world, people throw around the word genius. But, you know, I think all of the great geniuses through history, uh, like I said, at least according to this Ancient Aliens episode I saw – Uh, are all kind of touched or keyed in to this sort of cosmic consciousness, I'll just call it. And because of that communion, they're able to come up with these works of genius, whether it's E equals MC squared or whether it's Kirby's incredible stories that, you know, now 60 years later are finally being made into movies. You know, Ava DuVernay, is doing the new gods, which was Kirby's versions of new gods for our time. If superheroes are our 20th century mythological gods, you know, in four colors on, on paper. And, you know, there's going to be a big budget, you know, big movie, which again goes back to my statement that when we were 10 years old, we were reading the new gods and being blown away by it. Hey, we got to stop we're at the top of the hour. Hold it there. My guest this morning is Arlen Schumer. We're talking comic books. We're talking black superhero comic books. And we're talking a legacy which may be a little bit bigger than our current conversation. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out.
Thank you.